Welcome. I am John, a black male who identifies as he, him, his, son of D, Johnny, Pete, and Karen, grandson of Leola, Lawrence, Cecilia, and Quilla, partner of Lakeisha, father of Kyrie, Messiah, Jaden, and Jeremiah. I am in perfection in pursuit of excellence. Welcome. With me, I have my brothers that are my collective brilliance and co-liberators, Judge Wesley St. Clair, Reginald Cole, Dr. Bryn Jones, Arthur Hendricks, Kevin Bett, Ade Franklin, who will have the opportunity to introduce, introduce themselves in a moment. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the great spirit, our ancestors, including the many who lost their life to racism, police violence, COVID, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Manuel Ellis, Breonna Taylor, Charlena Lyles, and thousands of other brothers and sisters. I'd also like to take the time to acknowledge the fact that we are on Native American lands as the stewards, original stewards of these lands. Um, I wanna call out the, the coastal Salish tribes that are with us in our, within our region. A shout out to the Duwamish, the Lumi, Muckleshoot, and Squally, and the Puyallup. Uh, we have a responsibility to continue um, partnering with them um, to be honored in their stewardship of this land and follow their lead um, in being stewards as well. Missing is the Black African feminine voice and the voice of the Two-Spirit. There are other POC voices that are also missing from this space. I'd like to take a moment to express some gratitude to our partners, our family, and the community that holds us, Indivisible and Stephen Cox for this opportunity to share a piece of our brilliance. At this moment, I'd like to engage our elder, Judge Wesley St. Clair, and ask for his permission in proceeding with this program. I'm very honored to be here uh, assisting in this process and look forward to the um, exciting conversation that I think can uh, come from it. Please move forward. Thank you, Judge. I'd like to take a moment to talk about what we are not. We are not representatives of all Black, African-American, African voices, including perspectives and experiences. We are not perfect. Personally, my patriarchy and internalized racial oppression has consciously and subconsciously harmed members of our community. At this point in time, I'd like to ground in with a quote from one of the elders of our community, Dr. Cornell West. He says, it takes a courage to look in the mirror and see past your reflection to who you really are. When you take off the mask, you're not performing the same old routines and social roles. It takes courage to ask, how did I become so well adjusted to injustice? So with that, I'd like to lead in to our introduction, starting with our elder, Judge Wesley St. Clair. Please let us know who you are and who claims you. My name is uh, Wesley St. Clair. I am the um, son of uh, Joseph and Margaret. I am the uh, great-great-grandson of uh, Elizabeth Prettyman Payne, 
a runaway slave from Maryland who walked from uh, Maryland to Kansas. She was pregnant with one child and had a six-month child in the course of that uh, transition. I am a um, retired uh, King County Superior Court judge. And uh, having spent the uh, almost 30 years in the, uh, as a judge in a uh, system that has, uh, people say the system is broken. And my response is the system works exactly as it's planned to have worked, marginalizing uh, in, by generations uh, poor uh, black and brown people. Um, it's almost an embarrassment to say that I've been a part of that system. But uh, fortunately, I think we were able to uh, begin the process to address some of the uh, injustices that the system continues to perpetuate. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. Reginald Cole, would you mind introducing yourself? Who are you? Who claims you? So <clears throat> my name is Reginald Barrington Cole, go by Reggie with family and friends. Um, parents, Alicia and Brian Cole, uh, family from uh, my dad's side. I, I got to travel for a family uh, reunion, Cole, Cole family from Joliet. Um, we first uh, saw one of the signs from the plantation they were actually on. Um, the youngest of four four boys, uh, my brothers Isaac Bajan and Jamal Cole, uh, grew up and still staying in Skyway. Uh, spent the last spent my my whole career doing uh, youth work in Skyway, Renton, uh, Seattle. Now doing uh, work in the government. Um, all all moving towards increasing youth and young adults opportunities to strong values, resources, and relationships. Um, this, my, 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 my whole life, uh, <clears throat> it, it's been very clear the haves and the have nots in terms of power and resources uh, from a systems perspective in our society. And, and thus I've dedicated my life's work to working to shift that and um, really, really just be about ensuring that everyone in our society feels loved. And when you, when you have groups for years upon years upon years upon years that are not getting that, are not getting those resources, not getting those use um, shared across their society, not getting those resources, um, those relationships, it, it truly, truly breaks my heart. Um, and I think as the judge kind of spoke on it. The part that eats me up is out of all these years working to quote unquote move up in the system so that I can try to support my brothers and sisters. There's that much time that I've spent <laughs> in the system um, trying to be quote unquote successful when that's so much more time I could have spent learning about my history, my culture, my family, my people. Um, so it's, a, it's an honor to be on this call with all y'all. And uh, 
I look forward to good conversation. Thank you, Brother Reggie. Kevin, who are you? Who claims you? Um, thank you, Don. Um, Kevin Kibet here. I go by he and them. Oh, that's a heavy question. Um, I am a descendant of the Nandi and the Keo people from um, the lands in Kenya, um, the Nilotic uh, people group. Um, Elizabeth Sang is my mom. Um, I come from strong, at least my, my upbringing has strong matriarchy. I go to Hona. Uh, the firm is very strong in my life as, as examples that stood me, they hold me, my sisters, my grandmothers, my aunts. Um, yeah, my, I have two kids. They, they, they come, I come to this conversation with um, Naima and uh, Malak um, they, and all the pluralities that lives with them. They, they are of African and Syrian and Scandinavian and English background and all that multitudes that come with them. I also come to this and people uh, come to this as with a curiosity on how the struggle of people who've been here, my brothers and my people who've been here, um, and with the humility of learning and humility of sharing my life, but also learning and like, taking part in that struggle and showing how can I apply myself and my resources, my privilege, my connections, and trying to expand that understanding of what's normal, but also in trying to really understand what's the contract we have with other people, with everyone, with understanding that whatever the least of us, as, as they are successful and as they are comfortable, then we all are comfortable. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Kevin. Appreciate that. Brother Ade, who are you? Who claims you? Thank you. Um, I am blessed to, to be participating in this conversation. Who am I? I am um, many. Um, and I, I'll start with my eldest ancestor that I'm aware of. He was born in bondage by the name of Alex Roberts, Robertson. And um, upon uh, Juneteenth, he changed his name to Alec Roberts and went on to uh, work on railroads and, and was able to buy property that we, my family still owns in uh, Center, Texas, outside of Houston. Um, in talking to my grandmother before she passed, I found out that uh, around that same time, another part of my family was Irish and an Irish man, um, uh, married a Native American woman, and they had kids and all their kids married black folks. Um, and so I do know a little bit about my history in that sense. I am uh, a father and a grandfather. I am a partner to an amazing woman. And I really like to think of myself most of all as, as a teacher and someone 
that is practicing um, listening, doing a, uh, a better job of listening. And John, you said something in your introduction that resonated with me about my patriarchy, something that I'm working on as well. Um, I am uh, a child of the South. While I was born and raised here in Seattle, I was the first person in my family born in Seattle and grew up in a Southern household. Um, and, you know, we ate fried chicken twice a week, twice a week, fried pork chops at least once and fried fish once a week. So <laughs> I know <laughs> it was definitely a, a Southern household and, and generally had biscuits on the weekends, you know, so um, oftentimes people are confused when they meet me in Seattle because I don't come across as a Seattle light. And it took me a while to understand that that's because um, I grew up in this Southern household, uh, living in Seattle, being raised uh, with Southern traditions. Um, I am um, practicing on being a servant, being both a leader and being a servant. That's some, one of my uh, current passions and the thing that I am, I am working on most um, urgently at this time. But thank you again for having me. Thank you for being here, Brother Aday. Dr. Jones, who are you? Who claims you? Thank you, Brother John. Uh, I identify as he and him, and I am the son of Mona and Joe. And the relative that I'm aware of that's the eldest in my lineage is a, a freed slave by the name of Charlie Lake in Bolivar, Tennessee. I was able to see that uh, for my own eyes. And my understanding, we are the original Kizzy and Kunta Kinte story. So there's some discretion around what Alex Haley wrote relative to my family. Nonetheless, I am still a work in progress. I'm a father, a husband. I'm a man of great faith. Uh, by way of study, I am an expert in systems, yet I'm also a learner around systems. I'm inspired by helping people navigate systems and structures. And by way of experience and age, I'm approaching elder status. I don't claim that lightly, but it's something that I will have to lean into. And so uh, I am still a student learning the ways of this world, trying to be in a transformative state at all times and in a state of continuous improvement. Uh, I, I have an empathetic way that I move around this, this space and time and um, I'm appreciative of uh, the things that come to me and I will not conform to the patterns of this world, but I'll be renewed by the transformation of my mind. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Brother Art, who are you? Who claims you? So my name is Arthur Bela Hendricks. Um, you can call me Art. Um, I am the son of Arthur Glenn Hendricks, uh, but he went by Brownie. Um, and the, uh, my mother is Suzanne Virginia Truitt. Um, 
in my father's side. Uh, my father was one of 17 children born to Alexander Brooks Hendricks and Willie May uh, Carrington Hendricks and earliest lineage in terms of um, African heritage is uh, Jesse Johnson, uh, who was a mulatto and um, was uh, essentially a, a free man. And then uh, Mary Wilson, who uh, became uh, an emancipated slave in Johnson, Virginia, uh, Johnson City, Virginia. And um, I, uh, uh, I am uh, biracial. So at the same time that I claim my African heritage, I also have to acknowledge um, that when I was born, I was born in 1962 in San Francisco um, at a time of awakening in this country um, and was denied entrance into my, uh, my mother's parents' house because my grandfather was racist and refused to accept the fact that his grandson uh, was mixed. Um, and in the 49 years that um, he uh, was, I never met him. Uh, and when I had an opportunity, refused to, uh, to meet him um, in large part because um, that die was cast. And, you know, at the time that I was born, um, I think my mother and father met each other um, at a point in this country where uh, the conversation, right, the, the, the civil rights movement where, where we were at. Uh, I remember living in Toledo, Ohio in 1968 and seeing the riots in Toledo uh, and in Detroit um, and being concerned for my cousins um, and staying up all night because the National Guard was called in and uh, there were shootings in Detroit and being six years old, trying to process this, right? And trying to process what it meant to be a light-skinned, light and bright brother uh, in, in a chocolate city. Um, and, 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 and where was my place in terms of the world? So I, uh, I think those early experiences shape who I am and what I do. So it really doesn't matter what my occupation, what my position is. I recognize that uh, I recognize the sacrifice of the people who came before me, and uh, and that's what I really sort of strive to is in terms of being able to uh, fulfill that vision and that dream that has been with us for over 400 years, and that I think that's the emancipation and the liberation of uh, not only bodies but minds and spirits. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Gentlemen, I'd like for y'all to think about your experience in today's world. Brother Art, would you please opening and responding, sharing with others your experience? Wow. Um, you know, it's just a mixture, uh, roller coaster of um, hope, uh, um, you know, excitement, just a lot of pride for 
I think the people in the streets who uh, have said enough is enough, right? Um, and fear, right? And uh, trepidation, agony, pain, um, and um, you know, I think that the experience now is one where I find myself um, really in a spiritual place in knowing that um, for me, America is at a crossroads and we've been here before historically in the sense that we can choose the path of uh, liberal democracy or fascism, right? And just sort of being terrified in terms of, of the impulses and, um, you know, just the overall um, hatred, right, that white people still have today. And in some ways, I'm both disgusted, but I'm also um, at a point where this is what needs to happen, right? We need to see it. Um, we need to see it in terms of all its rawness. So for me, I find myself um, really reaching out and just having a whole mixture of emotions. Um, and I reach out to uh, some of the brothers here on, on this call and in, in terms of my network, folks who've been with me on this journey around um, supporting and uplifting those folks who are, are truly um, working towards liberation. Um, and just, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm hopeful um, and I'm scared at the same time. Thank you, brother, appreciate that. Dr. Jones, what about your experience? Tell, me, tell, us, tell us a little bit about what you're feeling around what's going on in today's world. Well, there's, there's not uh, really tangible evidence for being optimistic. Uh, we seem to be playing catch up constantly. Um, but me personally, I'm choosing to stay optimistic because there's really no other way to uh, exist. If we, if we choose the, the, the former, we will, uh, as a collective, we will tend to gravitate to the minimal standard of living. And one of our famous documents says, life and the liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And I think we need to be focused on that pursuit of happiness somehow, some way. And, you know, even though we're in a state of, there's this low hum of hostility that we experienced kind of every day. And it's, uh, and it's a low hum of being discounted every day but there's still great things about our walk. We have the opportunity to uh, control our conditions. We have the opportunity to think about strategies for our liberation. We have opportunities to be in a collective state with other brothers and sisters about us uh, living in a way that we will have uh, that pursuit of happiness. And so uh, my faith is the, is the sole purpose that keeps me optimistic, but it's, it's tough. And it's this, again, this dual existence of having uh, hope, uh, but with no evidence that we're gonna, our, we'll be relieved of our collective condition anytime soon. But I'm, I'm, I'm uh, choosing, again, 
to uh, stay in a state of vitality and uh, really consider uh, what's good in the world and spend time elevating that. And so uh, that's, that's kind of where I am right now, John. Appreciate that. Been spending a lot of time working to get to the point of uh, our liberation. And I had settled on not even actually seeing it in our lifetime. Like my role was to create or um, lay the foundation for my children's generation to therefore get to this tipping point. And I find it fascinating that that tipping point exists now and what we do with that, right? Um, Brother Ade, would you mind sharing with us your experience today's world? Yeah, I think, um, well, I, I feel similarly to um, the, some of the sentiments that have been expressed. Um, this there's part of me that has this hope and optimism and wanting to believe that we are at this, uh, this point of uh, this jump off of this fulcrum of change, um, this fulcrum where justice is finally going to um, outweigh injustice. Um, and it is, it is um, I guess I get choked up even thinking, talking about it because I am also very afraid that we won't realize our true potential here and, and leverage this moment into um, a, a brighter future, uh, particularly for black folks and for black and brown folks. And, and quite frankly, white people don't realize it, but they will also benefit from this true freedom um, within the United States. Um, so I am um, living with this, with this, um, this dissonance of, of, of hope and fear and choosing like the brothers on the phone to, to live in that space of hope and belief and, and still in the back of my mind and in my heart, I know that there's a possibility that Trump could get elected again. And, and the hurt that that would cause me is unbearable to, to really consider. Um, because in part, it means that all of these, these calls that we've been, that so many uh, brothers and sisters have been, been receiving from, from white folks asking us how we're doing as is all just um, ploy and just I don't meaninglessness. Um, so I am quite optimistic and hopeful, and definitely afraid um, of what could be. That is some candor right there. I appreciate that honesty, um, brother Kevin. Please share with us your experience in today's world. Thank you. Um, I think I also come in plurality and duality. I come from a, a very tribal culture and we, and in my familial experience and what I saw being applied is there was a sense of communalness. And we, there was an agreement on 
the way I put it in my, in my mind at least was a conversation of like what quality of life that all of us should get as a community, just in honoring our humanness, what quality of life we should get. Um, and, and it seems like that conversation has not been had or, or, or a certain part of the community has not been had. And so we've been overlooked, the black community has been overlooked or is being looked as less. And so I come with anger in the sense, there's some part of me that is really angry because like from Ahmad Abri and that essence of like, wait, how, how can three people just run after just someone and callously take someone's life? And then for me, for that instance was just one of those of like, but wait, why is the silence? Because where I come from, people would, or at least what I would see, people would say, wait, this is not us. And they will say, don't even do anything. We will go and find the people and we'll bring them and ensure justice happens. Then, then that continues on to Central Park. And, and I was just like, wait, you're just, it was just a civil request. But then you totally understand the system and how you can put me in place, in my place. And, and that was painful to, to realize that. And then to make matters worse, this weekend someone was like, actually, you know, the saddest thing is, sadly, many people who would do that, they would be marching in the streets. People who would be calling the cops would be marching in the streets. And I'm like, uh-uh. And then for Floyd, was this question of like, he used the same phrases Eric Garner used. And that did not even bring the humility, the, the, someone did not even see the humanity. He called out for his mother. That did not even just, even call, it didn't cause, call someone to street. Or even, even if it was just for self-preservation that I would lose my job, that would not even, did not even move someone. Ah, and then, and then, McDade, Tony McDade, that even in his death, in, in, in his death, we could not even honor him to pronounce him correctly. And then in Seattle, we go and we mess a 10-year-old. No. Um, but also, I, I, that, well, that, I hold that, and I hold that, and I hold that anger to push me towards action and, and commune with, with you in my community to figure out what action is. I also, I am a public servant, and I also wonder, like, what are the strategies, what are the things that we could do to ensure that this changes, that we can spur that, continues do that work to, to, to see that change that happens. I am hopeful, I, I am hopeful, and I'm, I'm curious what that would be. And to close out where I am at, Wangara Madai says that in every population, there seems to be a 25% and a 25% and a 50%. Whereas, the, so depending on good and, okay, so the 25%, you would say good and evil, quote unquote, whatever that is. And then the 50% are swayable. And so depending on which of the 25% seems loud and majority, then they sway the 50%. And that is the point where I am holding on and I'm spying on to be like, at least the voice of like, we are tired, this is not acceptable, that will sway the 50% and the 
that they will sway the society to make subtle changes, no, not subtle, to make concrete changes that in this generation, are, the call that calls to this generation are struggle for this generation, that we will go on and for the next generation we will say, indeed, we did our part. I'll say it, brother. Reggie, share with us your experience in today's world. Please. Um, yeah, so in terms of experience, it's, it's, it's kind of like I'm you know, kind of coming in and out. Um, kind of like a light switch being turned on and off, but I'm not necessarily the one turning it on and off. So one day I'll be pushing, protesting, speaking, and the next day I'll be jumping on a Zoom call and tears is running down my eyes and I'm wondering where it's coming from and things kind of just kind of hit me out of nowhere. Um, so when I find myself on, I find myself, you know, really desiring and pushing to make change. I feel myself with a, a, a burning fire um, and, 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 you know, just really upset you know, at, at what's going on and, and, and wanted to use that fire and that, that anger to make change. Because, you know, a lot of people want to talk about anger being a negative thing. And, you know, that, that, that's an emotion that, that, that moves. And for all the people, you know, that see what's happening on the news, you know, you know, they're getting up, they're speaking up because it's bringing up emotion in them. So, you know, just really recognize that as a positive thing. Um, and, I, and, and, and also when I'm on, I feel powerful. You know, the Bible talks about, you know, being able to move mountains. And I feel like, you know, there, there's work to be done. And when there's work to be done for a just cause, anything can be done. And then, you know, the next moment I'm feeling off. Um, dealing with grief and, and and again as i mentioned not, not even necessarily knowing it and as i kind of recognize it it's just you know kind of hits me a bit harder uh and with the sadness that comes with that um this feeling of quote unquote not feeling productive in my workspace and community overall with you know with, with all things um and then you know and, and then powerless um, and thinking of just the complexity of everything. Um, so I think that that feeling of kind of being on and off and, and not necessarily feeling like I'm in control of that per se has really forced me to, to try to be more aware and recognize, oh, wait, you know, I'm noticing something's going on right now. Um, let me, let me, let me, let me look for the signs of what's going on. Um, being more prayerful, uh, where it talks about, you know, renewing your mind daily. So I, when I wake up, I usually got negative thoughts coming in. I'm usually feeling that much less productive. Right before I go to bed, everything, it's like my brain kind of wants to be flooded with these thoughts. So really just being prayerful and recognizing, you know, there's something that's bigger than me. God is bigger than all of this. And, and regardless of what you believe, there's something that's bigger than us all that ties us together. And what does it look like for me to, put my time and my energy into that and feed those thoughts rather than feeling feeding the negative thoughts um and, and just being neutral and kind of just like being pulled by to and fro by however the world wants to throw me um and then i would say lastly it's just kind of like i'm in all that really meeting myself where i'm at as i'm being aware as i'm being prayerful it's like where am i at in this moment in this time and space 
as well as where the people around me at. You know, how am I doing? How are they doing? What does it look like for me to put my mask on? What does it look like for me to step out in the streets? What does it look like for me to do what I need to do in the given time? And and you know, consistently checking in. So it's a it's a lot. And I but I mean, <laughs> you know, we've been through a lot for hundreds of years. So uh there goes that fire kicking up. <laughs> but uh yeah, go ahead and pass it on. And that's all right. That is all right. Ah, thank you. Judge, please yes, in today's world. You know, I can really relate to Reginald's comments because um, uh, shortly after I watched the first video, a couple of days later, I was getting ready to go to bed and I started crying. Just just bawling my eyes out. Couldn't stop. Took me an hour to stop. And, and, you know, because of the emotion that it, uh, it's continuing another and the callousness with which it was done add to it the aubrey uh hunt because that was a hunt and they were looking for him and they hunted him down and they killed him and it took two months for them to report that let alone Brianna is in her own house. And they come in and, and shoot her eight times. So, you know, it, 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 you know we're going through this uh, post-traumatic, this is PTSD is what we're living at this point in time. And uh, we, we really need to be about the self-care process because uh, you know the uh, I, I really like the conversation that I've heard that where we had our pandemic, we have COVID nineteen, and then we have racism. And the racism pandemic is much more extreme. It's taken many more lives than uh, COVID nineteen did. Although COVID nineteen obviously manifests the uh, insipid um, uh, impact of disparate health care access to opportunities because uh, most of the deaths, well, you, excuse me, 40% uh, black people represent around 13% of the population in the United States, yet they represent 40% of the people who are dying, who have died from COVID. So, you know, so as, as I, as I, you know, because I fall into this highest risk group, I kind of, I'm staying away from people, um, being very remote and, and, but I did happen to go to a community um, demonstration. And it was kind of amazing to see all the white people out there. And, you know, they're, they're, they're chanting the signs. And then I think of, uh, Amy Cooper, who probably has the most insipid form of uh, process where she said, you know, you in my space, and I got control. I'm the one that, and you could see her acting, oh, he's after me. 
He's, he's threatening my dog. You, you know, also it, it goes to, you know, I, I take walks every night, uh, my dog on walks and uh, there's a, uh, as um, Mr. Cooper speaks to the fact of um, his, there not being very many black birders. And then there's a couple of articles that talked about the absence of black people and people of color in the, the national parks. And, and, you know, I've always been hesitant to go to national parks because one, these white folks have got guns. And they would do whatever the hell they want to to me because nobody cares. So that's why I would go, and I would take my kids and go, well, yeah, we want to go camping, but we need to make sure where we're going. That, that they're going to be able to survive. So I'm, I'm going through this, you know, uh, this uh, uh, emotional roller coaster that has me wanting to believe that, oh, this is different than all the other times. See, but I've been on this earth 70 years. And so I've lived through the uh, 68 uh, uh, burnings uh, around the death of uh, MLK. And, you know, they did the Kerner Commission and these are the things we're going to do. And then that sucker, uh, that commission report is gathering dust. Hadn't been looked at since. But all the issues that it presented are still going on today. So as much as I want to be hopeful and say this is different, I mean, it does feel different. You know, because we got now the protests, uh, it is different because the protests are happening in Frankfurt, in Berlin, in London, in Sydney, uh, let alone most of the cities in this country. But racism is, uh, it, it, it is this insipid uh, disease that last night, some white guy drives his car into a demonstration in Seattle, pulls out a gun, shoots somebody, and then he runs to the police. Help me. Protect me from, from those people. You know, I keep on thinking that as much as we want to believe that it's not going to be the same, I, I really want to believe that, you know, because I want to believe my, my uh, grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren, it's going to be different for them. You know, because the, uh, we, uh, uh, you know, but we've been having some type of conversation about this disparate treatment for, um, you know, since we've been here, but really for the last 150 years. Ain't much changed. We still got slave labor going on. You look at what happens in the uh, prisons where you're paying people uh, pennies an hour in order to be on call centers or make furniture or make uh, 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 mattresses. Uh, a slave labor. And, and we still, you know, the, the 13th Amendment says uh, slavery, is a, slavery is abolished except 
if you've been convicted of a felon. So now the goal is, and you know, mass incarceration, they can't buy convicted of a felony. So one, they can't vote, can't change anything. They lose their right to uh, freedom of movement. And it's like this, you know, the uh, law enforcement has this constant ability to uh, mess with you. So, you know, I was on a Zoom call with my, uh, my grandkids. And um, they said, um, you know, we were talking about the stuff that's going on. And they said, ask me, say, Grandpa, are you afraid? I'll go, baby, every time I get in the car, I'm terrified. If I see the red and blue lights on, am I going to walk away from this? Because of late, it's not, it, it not been happening very good for us when that occurs. And here, this is me, who is a person independently elected, a county of 2.2 million people, judge. And there are times I'm terrified. You know, there's some communities where I'm really terrified. And now there's just the standard fear. So the, because uh, when you talk about the experience today, for me, it, it, mine goes back, it brings things that happened in the 60s and the 50s, brings it to, to, to today as well. And um, uh, I, I keep on wanting to be optimistic. I need to be optimistic because otherwise I'd eat my, I need to eat a gun. Because this is uh, the emotional turmoil that, uh, we live with under this model of racism is um, uh, extreme. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. Powerful, um, powerful, real lived experiences. We've all touched on these adverse experiences that we've had throughout our lives, right, that have shown up in the form of hate, in the form of racism, right? This next question, I want to take it deeper. I want to take it internally, right? How has this hate, this racism of others manifested itself in you? Reggie, would you mind leading off? Um, that question makes me think about um, if, if I was in position uh, some of our brothers and sisters that have been murdered, you know, how would I react? Um, I remember in college, we was doing, a, we did a training, we were trained to be minority peer counselors and talk about various type of isms, various type of workshops, et cetera. And they told us when we were graduating, they said, uh, you know, don't forget, you know, your privilege. And we all kind of made some faces like, wait, what? Because um, the group, the, the minority peer counselors uh, were all students of color and pretty much most of the students uh, that, that, that were in that program um, had dealt with various levels of oppression. Um, but when they talked about that privilege piece, they were just, you know, really reminding of us of, you know, coming out of an Ivy League institution, there's going to be an expectation that we 
support our community in a certain way. So when I think about some of these murders and I think about kind of what's boiling up in me and that, that anger, that hate um, that I see in the society, it's like, okay, man, I've been in so many white institutions and have practiced and trained and prepped for certain situations, you know, put your hands on the steering wheel, don't talk back, don't do this. And, and, and as all this stuff has happened, I feel it boiling over. And I'm just like, man, if, so, if somebody was to put their hands on me in the wrong way, to, to, to slam me in a certain way, I feel like what really boils up is I've done, I've done, I've done all, I've put in, I put in all these years of work to navigate your systems and yet you're still going to treat me this way. And regardless of what I do, it don't matter what I do. You're going to do this no matter what. And, 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 and it, and I heard, I think it was a, it was a, one of these rappers that was talking about, you know, let somebody put their hands on my daughter, you know, I'll take somebody out type of comment. And it was like, <laughs> it, 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 it was like, I was in a, I was in a conversation with my family and they was kind of talking about like us as black people. And regardless of the pain that we go through, we're all about bringing people in. We're all about forgiving folks. We're all about oneness. So the fact that this oppressive system can bring out this level of anger, this level of violence, this level, you know, build this pressure pot to make me act, want to act in a way that I would, never want to act in this thing that I've trained my whole life to not do. I can only imagine what my brothers and sisters are dealing with when they've dealt with that much more oppression that, than I've dealt with. When they've had that much, when, when, they, when they've had that much less experience of being exposed in these different spaces to work on and talk through and, 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 I can't even put it into words, but I think that it's, 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 it's crazy because it's just like my, my core, my being as a black man, as a man of God, is love and it's peace. You know, when I think about the situations that we are put in because of these broken systems and how that brings up these visceral reactions in me, it's like, it's, it's a shame. It's, it's unthinkable and it's pretty darn ridiculous. And I know when people make comments of like, oh, I can't believe, you know, I, I'm, I agree with these protests, but I, I can't, I can't, you know, these riots there, what are they doing? You know, they're doing this, they're doing this. It's like, man, what would you do <laughs> if somebody had their knee on your neck? If somebody killed one of your family members, if somebody, you know, ran up into your house, as many people want to talk about, you know, it's my right to go get a haircut. It's my right. I need to be able to go get some food. I can't stay in my house all because of COVID. Because of COVID, you know, it's just like, man, there's, there's so many more layers of, of oppression that people are dealing with. And look, and look how they're still responding regardless. They still show up for peace. They still show up for love. You still got people putting up social media stuff, putting up dances and how we're strong and, 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 and just different things to show how we're thriving. Let, let me see you deal with that level of pressure, that level of oppression for a week and not want to snap. So, uh, yeah, that's, it's, there, there's a lot in there. There's a lot, there's a lot in there for sure. Understand, brother, that resiliency you speak of is so legit. Dr. Jones, 
share with us in the audience how has hate of others manifested itself in you? Thank you, bro. Um, hate, hate has really uh, made me um, grow up too fast and forget about my childhood. When I was a kid, I could do everything, be everything, uh, solve all the world's problems. There were no limits. There were no restrictions. We could ride our bikes and think we were the fastest. We could run and think we were the fastest. We could jump, think we could jump the highest. There was no, there was no problem that we couldn't resolve as a kid. And at some point, uh, this level of hate and the judge talk about this PTSD, which becomes part of us, prevents us from dreaming like that, prevents us from being, being great. We can get to a level of success, but because we're dealing with this hate, it distracts us from the dream. It distracts us from having, a, having an optimistic vision. And I question, uh, am I well enough to dream and lead others to their own greatness because of the restrictions that I might have on me that I didn't have as a child that I've learned through living and having this constant oppression. And that constant oppression may not look physical, it may not look violent, but it's constant. And so there's a, there's a, there's a dampering or a, 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 the flicker of the flame instead of this hot flame that we used to have that I used to have for uh, uplifting people and being great and being Dr. King and being seven years old testifying in front of the school board that Dr. King was a great man. Let's change the name of this school to Martin Luther King Elementary School and it happening and I saw that happen to an older person that doesn't have that vigor. Uh, by all accounts, if you looked at my resume, you say that brother is successful. But I'm not necessarily living the dream. And my brothers around me aren't necessarily living the dream. And we haven't probably realized our greatness. And if we and if we were asked, you know, what do we want? I think 99% of us would say, I want to be liberated. I want, I want to be able to be, do the same things as my white counterparts can do. But that's just meeting a standard that's the same as everyone else. We don't have this, this desire, I think, collectively to uh, be superstars, to be wonderful, to be fantastic, to exist in this state of euphoria. And, and how, do, how do we get there? And I think that's the whole dynamic of hate and this internalized uh, racism and internalized oppression kind of puts us in in a straitjacket and shackles and we can't we can't spread our wings we can't soar above situations and so I, I think I'd like us to get back to being childlike and, and innocent in our dreaming without having had these oppressive experiences that, that take us away from being that great individual that we can all be.
And so as I, I even question my coaching of others, am I coaching others to rise above the system or am I coaching others just to navigate through the system? And, and so hate has this deep kind of uh, maneuvering of your mind to prevent you from being able to transform your situation. And so that's, that's how I see hate manifesting in, in myself and similarly situated brothers and sisters and just oppressed people that they can't rise above their situation. Uh, of course, there's all kinds of structural things that are preventing that. But the things that we're in control of sometimes are, prevent us from dreaming in that way that we did as a kid. Mm. Mm. Take a moment after that one, doctor. Uh, Brother Art, mind sharing with us in the audience how hate of others has manifested itself in you? Well, you know, I, sh I shared about, you know, my childhood, right? And just, you know, out the gate, not even being able to understand the world, right? Like the, the situation of, you know, being a mixed child of a black man and a black woman and a white woman and, you know, um, I'll be honest with you, man. I have reflected a lot on situations in my childhood. Uh, my mother, father died when I was eight, you know, and uh, I see, I saw addiction. Um, you know, I said my dad was one of 17 kids and, you know, half of my uncles, 14 boys, three girls, you know, died of some type of addiction, right? Um, and we're talking about in, you know, Toledo, Ohio, in Midwest City, where, you know, um, this, it's tough, man. It's a tough place to live, uh, white, blue-collar racism, right? And, um, seeing, you know, my father go to work for Chrysler and seeing, you know, my family and you go to Toledo, Ohio now, man. And it's, you know, you talk about institutionalization and rate, you know, uh, racism. It's, it, it manifests itself in the ain't shit there, right? It, the div they divest it. Okay. In whole communities in the United States, you know, with this promise of, um, we're gonna um, get a piece of the apple pie, right? And um, and then my father died when I was eight, and my mother remarried, and um, she married a man. His name was Fred Lewis, and he did two tours in Vietnam. Was a prisoner of war, um, had been shot thirteen times, had a steel plate in his head, um, had his pinky toes cut off. Uh, he was from Galveston, Texas, and uh, he was a he was a strong black man. and And I used to see, I used to be riding with him, and I remember riding in Springfield, Oregon. And you know, he got pulled out of a police car, mistaken identity. You know, we know who you are. We don't need to see your ID. And you know, I saw him beat down with nine, you know, nine police cars with batons, and um, damn near killed this man. Um, and so for me, you know, the, the hatred of racism and the, and the targeting of black people and black men, you know, causes me incredible pain. Right. Um, 
And when I got to a point where I could start making choices, you know, a lot of people, when they meet me, they see sort of this ambiguous looking light skinned person. And what they, you know, they, they soon find out like, you know, um, for me, the struggle really was about really confronting this white racist system. And in some ways, that confrontation of the white racist system is confronting my own family, right? It's confronting, uh, you know, my, you know, my friends. And so, um, you know, I started working in the prison system and I think judge will relate to this in that, you know, uh, Brent talked about just being able to be uninhibited. Um, and I remember, you know, I remember those days, 1970, 1972, you know, there, there's this period of time in America where it was like, you started to see a rise in the black middle class and you started seeing black neighborhoods. And then all of a sudden you had crack cocaine and you had, uh, you, you, you know, you had the uh, militarization of police forces. You had Daryl Gates, you know, talking with battering rams in Los Angeles and you had, uh, you know, uh, where brothers used to be able, you know, Bill Withers worked on an assembly line in Los Angeles and played guitar, you know, in the evenings and, you know, he made it big, but he was one of those brothers that worked in, uh, you know, plants in Los, in Los Angeles and California. I know whole black men, I can tell you name after name, like they didn't go to college, they didn't go to university, they worked on the space show worked on the space shuttle because they were in the SEVA program and they were in the job training program and, you know, they were able to get a trade. They were able to provide for their families and all of that got wiped away with Reaganomics. All of that got wiped away with, um, you know, we now have super predator black kids, you know, that are out terrorizing. And so what we need to do is we need mandatory sentencing, right? Within four years, what you saw was 49 states in this country revised their criminal justice system so that, you know, if you uh, did uh, one crime, if Louis Armstrong were born in the 90s, he would have been in prison as opposed to becoming the greatest trumpet player, you know, that this world had ever known. And what you saw was the mass incarceration of Black people, right? And so for me, um, how I had to counter that hate um, and how I see that hate showing up in myself is to, is to recognize um, when I'm like aligning myself with the narrative that has been told by white America to divide people from the time that this country, poor white folks from black folks from the time this country was founded. You know, I had the good fortune to go to school with uh, Derek Bell Jr. His dad was Derek Bell, uh, this little rights attorney um, at, at Harvard, and he wrote a, a book called Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of Racism. And race has always been used as a convenient narrative to, for the affluent whites to divide poor white folks, right, by saying, well, I'm, I may not have anything but at least I'm not black, right? And it's ironic to me that white men can storm into, uh, you know, governors, uh, state legislatures talking about, we don't want the government taking away our civil rights, right? We don't want the government infringing upon our freedoms 
and yet a police officer can choke out a man. There's nothing more than taking away the civil rights, than taking away somebody's life, and we all being innocent bystanders, right? And I think bystander powerlessness is one of the things that we're experiencing. There was no, nothing that anybody could do that stopped that police officer from not choking that man. And we videotaped it and we watched. So the hatred is consistent, it's constant, it is embedded in you know, our narratives, it is embedded in everything that we do. And every day I have to confront me around what am I doing? Am I putting my knee on somebody's neck? Right? I'm at, you know, I work in a job, you know, I, I have one of these functions where I can play a gatekeeper. You know, do I stand in the way of progress or do I get the hell out the way? And more importantly, you know, do I love, do I love you all as you, you know, treat thy neighbor as thy, you know, as thy brother? Do, do, do I do that? Do I exemplify that, right, in terms of what King envisioned for us in terms of a beloved community? So, you know, one of the things I've been saying to young people who have been talking to me about is this is your time. And I've been saying, you know, Malcolm X said, if you wait for justice, it's not going to come. You got you, you to take it. And this is your chance. You better take it. Because you damn sure know that, you know, the counter is going to happen. Um, and so for me, you know, I know that I have to be stand up and counted. Uh, let me just say this one last thing. I used to have this really good friend. His name was Terrell Johnson. Terrell passed away about 10 years ago. He's from Louisiana dark skin brother. And we used to have a consulting business together. He always used to say, partner, all I want to know is when the revolution happens, what side you going to be on? <laughs> right? He used to say that to me every day. Our, all I want to know is when revolution happens, what side you going to be on? And it was an understanding between us that he loved me, but his point was, I can't hide brother. Like when the revolution happens, they know who I am, where I am, where, I, where I'm at. I need to know where, where, where you're going to be, right? Uh, you can't do that Richard Pryor thing that whatever gang's winning, you're going to be on that side, right? You got you to stand up and be, and be counted. And so that's what I try to do. You know, I, I, I try to examine myself. I try to, you know, listen to others. Uh, and I damn sure uh, ain't going to pass uh, and, and not claim uh, who I am. Thank you, Art. That's, that's something legit. A question we can put out to the white audience that uh, listens to the voices that we're sharing is, what side of the revolution against racism and injustices will you be on? Right? Where are you? Where do you stand? Judge, how has the hate of others manifested itself in you? You know, um... I have uh, uh, self-hate has been uh, strong in my life, something I've dealt with on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, when you're 
when you're in an institution that really looks backwards, the courts look backwards. They look at precedent in order to make their decision making, what the case law shows and what the prior laws were and how they have evolved. And so, um, and so, you know, uh, uh, courts are, have been institutions that really hate change uh, and will do everything in its power to uh, not be a part of the change model. The change has to be really crammed down their throats and where they see they have no choice. Um, so in the course of me having become a judge and having been a judge and, and, and you know, for my 30 years, I was always in um, a motto of, uh, do I belong here? And, and is, you know, someone would say judge and I wouldn't be talking to me. You talking to me? <laughs> Um, and then, of course, you would also have the institutional racism kind of present itself as uh, many employees would say, who is this black guy telling us what to do? Uh, you would have litigants come in and say, "Woo, we got him? Who is he? Um, and so that, that, that works on your psyche. You know, and says, you know, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Well, hello. You know, um, I went to Yale University, and um, but I always had this this process that says, oh, that's right. I was an affirmative action baby. You know, and so that's I got in on a you know on the kind of give me. Fortunately my wife and actually some colleagues that I do uh, participate in circle with have given me the, the you know, they, they, they can't take that away from you. You, they, you, you. However you got into Yale had nothing to do with where you are today and the awards and accolades that you have, have acquired. You, you know, and, and, and it, the, I, I've been blessed because a couple of years ago, I got uh, some uh, brothers together, uh, some who are actually on this call, and began the conversation of, you know, uh, of self-hate. And especially when you're operating in primarily white spaces where you, you are the pepper in the sea of salt. And, and, and you have certain institutional roles that they want you to take. You know, when I was, when I told people I was retiring, a couple of my white colleagues came up to me and said, Wesley, what are we going to do? Who's going to be our conscious? Who's going to keep us straight when we, you know, when we got that racist shit going? I said, well, I don't have it. Why is it my job that I'm supposed to bear this brunt of this? You know, I, I need to call you out. I mean, I'd be in a meeting, you know, uh, uh, 25 people in the meeting, uh, two blacks, um, and somebody would say, you know, something that was clearly inappropriate, and they look at me. <laughs> I go, why do I have to respond to that shit stuff? You know, it's it's, it's not, not, not not it doesn't 
doesn't shouldn't come be a part of my job to do that. So fortunately, I, I've, I've in dealing with some brothers, we we've we've had we created this camaraderie that said, oh, you're feeling the same thing I'm feeling. We, we created the space where there's a, a an ability to have a level of vulnerability, yet safety, because they know what happens in that space, the sacred space stays there. There's a level of confidentiality that's associated with it. Because I got to tell you, we got judges, we got uh, prosecutors, we got um, uh, leaders at a variety of levels within uh, the, the county, uh, principals of both private and, and public schools. And, you know, it was a place where you could say, this is what I'm feeling. In a, in a place that gave, and, and through that process, it actually let me uh, deal with my rage. Because, you know, there's, there's anger, and then there's rage. Now, now, anger is good, you know, I think as Reginald said, uh, because it kind of spurs you on. Rage is an acid that eats you away from the inside. And so, you know, by working with this group of men, black men, it really gave me ability to let go of some of that rage and, and help me to begin the process of healing myself because we got to heal ourselves. We have in so much pain. We, we, we have this process where our physical health is impacted by that pandemic called racism. We know COVID-19 kills us. But racism, the way it operates like a um, uh, air conditioning, always in the background, you know, has this uh, toxic stress impact on our health. That's why we got diabetes, we got, you know, we had obesity, we got uh, high blood pressure, we have high cholesterol, because of what, the, what that racism noise creates. So it's, it's through this kind of uh, a sharing of the challenge of how do we deal with our self-hate that gave me the ability to begin this process of, uh, of healing. And uh, a spiritual let, let me, has led me to this spiritual journey that says, oh, I don't have to live in this place. I, I really can create something different. Um, so it, it, as challenging it, as it has been for me in, in dealing with, uh, you know, uh, uh, institutional self-hate, because it's institutional, you know, because I'm dealing with microaggressions and macroaggressions and an institution that doesn't want, don't, doesn't like people like me, because I'm the manifestation of, you know, oh, we're supposed to be oppressing you. You know, there, there's one other thing I want to say. You know, it's interesting as we uh, we talk about privilege. You know, uh, and we are privileged. We we do. I mean, we 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 have resources at our disposal. We have relationships at our disposal that others would uh, don't have realistically. And and there are times when you find yourself as not only as an oppressed, but also as an oppressor. 
And it's kind of wearing that, realizing that you're wearing that hat gives you, I think, a, a better appreciation of how to navigate this, this uh, 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 process. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Jones talked about, do I teach me how to navigate or do I teach me how to overcome it? You know, my, my mama taught me, you know, Wesley, you got to be five times better than white people in order to achieve the same thing. I, 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 that's true. But what a burden that we have to carry that I got to be that much better than them. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Brother Kev. How does hate of others manifest itself in you? That's a heavy question. And I invite, I appreciate the invitation to, to turn the camera inside oneself. And it's interesting, the very same thing, when you asked that question, I jotted some things down and it's being hit by several many people. And probably I'll start with self, just the hatred of self. And that even comes from being, not seeing myself for fully who I am. And you will realize in my introduction, I did not even wanna the male part of where I came from. And that my relationship with my dad is, is not there, he wasn't there, but anyway, so that's, that's that. So there's that, I gotta deal with that. But also then I thought about it and I was like, wow, have I decolonized my mind? The British, uh, Kenya was, was whatever by the British. Yeah, I've, 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 I've this, this week, one thing that has held me up and assisted me is thinking back on my people, like just with bows and arrows, we kept the British at bay for a long time before they could come and, and, and build a railway through our highways, our highlands. But nonetheless, there was still some decolonization. And then coming, following on to what the judge said of this high expectation of the other, of, of ourselves. That for people who are looking like me, then I've got a higher expectation of them. And that then this free pass that I give to people just because of skin color. Oh, man. And in how many instances have I done that? And then in what place do I stand and tell someone, Yo, you're being racist? Well, in, in instances, I've almost done the same thing. Oh, oh, oh. And then to make matters worse, then in being an oppressed, an oppressed person, then you figure out the system. And as, once you've learned the system, then you play the system to be well, for it to work for you. Because then if you don't, then it's, it's a matter of life and death, hunger, and all that. But then you get in, and then you tokenize. And then you're benefiting from the tokenization. And now you continue the oppression of the others. Because then you're this mortal person. And that's what a way to carry one. And then what a way to carry for the others. I appreciate some of you for having really like really nice sentiment of like, oh, we're not holding the door. We're checking off those hinges. 
so that people can come through. I, I appreciate that, but I see that work in me. And even like, some other place is like, or even like, on many people who have stood, I'm standing on many people's shoulders. Today, in what, I, in what sense have I laid my life down for others? And even to make matters better or worse, others who look like me, whose struggle is like me. And double that on, I have been in this country only for nine years. And quote unquote, I have options. What about your, oh, who, oh, oh, there's no options. You've lived with this all your life. And you still show up in all the greatness, in all the majesty, in all the beauty. Oh, oh. Yeah. <sighs> Thank you, brother. Hmm. Brother Ade, how has the hate of others manifested itself in you? <clears throat> well, first, let me recognize um, Brother Cabet for the, the courage um, to be vulnerable in the space and to um, show um, so much emotion and so much passion in, in his words. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, you know, uh, I think hate has had a different depending on my age, age, age uh, hate has had a different impact on me. In my youth, um, growing up in a, in a beautiful black neighborhood in, that was the CD, um, where you know, community parented everyone. And as much as you didn't want to act up at home, you better not act up at somebody else's house because that I get back home, that's the worst kind of trouble to get into. Um, and the, and growing up in the CD, I lived on the edge of the CD. And so in one direction, going down towards the lake, it got affluent and white. And then going back over the hill towards Martin Luther King and 23rd back into the heart of the CD, it got poor. And, and and browner um, and so I think in some ways um, the love of that community was in shielding us from the hate um, and talking to us about it in a way um, and letting us know like hey you've got to behave a certain way and and um, the way that families only let us go so far you know, they didn't want us to get too far away, um, getting into into white neighborhoods where, you know, um, who knew what they were, I imagine, concerned about what would happen to us. Um, so I would say young, in my early childhood, there was a bit of a, an awareness of, of the hate 
Um, it was spoken to, but I didn't see it because I was sheltered and lived in this this beautiful community where there were there were so many arms around us, holding us and protecting us. Um, and as I started to really see this difference between, um, you know, the haves and the have-nots and, and, and living in this area, I really think um, that drove me into some, some insecurities about myself, which led to um, drug use and even, I would say, drug, drug abuse um, in my high school years high school and college years actually um and i think it also fueled um anger in me too um there was definitely a time in my um you know in middle school when um, i i had a a rage in me that was uncontrollable um it's um it was um and even thinking about it now it it really scares me even thinking about it um so yeah hate has had um uh, multiple you know through time has had a lot of impacts on me i think professionally that hate of you know me um growing up uh, and being in an engineering field where um, really, really packed with white folks, um, and growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood, and and not feeling like I fit in to that to that community. I remember even being at Garfield and not wanting to take the um, the AP classes because it was all white white folks in those classes. And um, for as diverse as the school was, it was in many ways it was two schools school for the the whites and and, and the and the um and the asians and another for uh, the black folks and the latinos and the southeast asians um and so that that the hate that caused that segregation i think confused me and i wasn't sure who i was and so Again, hate has had a bunch of different impacts on me. I think there was a time when it fueled me knowing that my success um, was um, the modicum of success that I was able to achieve and anything that I was able to do um, stood in contrast to that hate or in opposition to that hate. Um, remember buying my first house and thinking um y'all have had a 400 year head start on me and i caught you i'm living in this neighborhood by the house right next to you and i i have caught you in some sense and feeling uh some sense of um some pride about pride in that and also um just this recognition of all the 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 love and that had been poured into me. Um, I think it has um, in my career. It's also led to self self doubt and not feeling like I uh, was worthy, a lack of worthiness, um, 
from being told those aren't good ideas and to have somebody um, else say the exact same thing and it becomes a brilliant idea. Um, and so there was, uh, I think at times when it fueled self-doubt and and even I would say even some pity that um, a little bit of a pity party not knowing um, how I would how I would get through. Um, so difficult question. Um, I also think there was a period in my life when, you know, and I was, I earlier I spoke about this, um, this drug use and drug abuse. I really think that was about numbing myself to this, to this pain, um, that I was feeling not necessarily understanding, but um, knowing that um, to get away from that, um, you know, could be found in a 40 or spliff. Um, I think um, that hate has forced me to be um, just, to look look back and to see um, all these different manifestations, and to know um, that the hate is it's not necessarily about me as an individual as a person, um, and that it doesn't control me any longer. I don't need to show up in a way um, that is, you know, to prove to white people that I'm worthy. I don't need to do that anymore. Um, it took me some time to grow into that, but now that's that's a, a, a place that, I, that I'm in. Um, I think the, the hate has, um, in some ways, um, reminded me of uh, my family and how um, loving we are and you know I think white people are really afraid that if black folks were to be in power that we would want to oppress them and it it shows it's just a further demonstration of how little they know about us and how they don't really see us because we never wanted to oppress anyone it is not what we're about we just want to be able to, you know, go for a run safely, um, go to bed in our house and sleep without fear of um, being murdered in our own homes. Um, you know, maybe even get a get our hustle on a little bit with, without, you know, selling cigarettes, trying to make ends meet without being killed, you know doing no one any harm, you know? So um, I think the hate has helped me see um, our humanity. Um, today, at least, that's, that's the impact that it's having on me and realizing um, that the thing that, the thing that black folks want isn't to be quote in power and to be the oppressor we really want to be the liberator the co-liberator and um to see 
love spread and really for love to be the center of of what society um, is about as opposed to uh, profits. And so um, the hate has made me today um, has given me a certain amount of strength and reflection to to see to see myself and to see our people um, more clearly in opposition to love and in in love with love. Thank you, brother. That is some big stuff. And it's a great segue into the next question. It's actually a two-parter. And I'll start with Brother Art. What gets in the way of your ability to love in expression and behaviors and be loved? And how will you overcome it? Um, well, I, I just want to um, appreciate um, everybody's vulnerability and, um, you know, sharing the personal, you know, stories. I think Ade touched on definitely um, an element of my um, existence in that um, I think you know, having to navigate two worlds and sort of the cognitive dissonance and the self-hate, right? The internalization of um, all the things that, you know, I think um, we've all been deluged with, right? Um, and I will say that, you know, it was, um, The black, you know, my, my family and the black community, when, when I, I was born in San Francisco and, you know, the earliest parts of my memories were in San Francisco, there were a lot of mixed race couples. It was a bubble, right? And, and that was my whole world. I didn't know about these other places, you know? And I remember going to Toledo um, and I remember, um, you know, I didn't see color, I didn't see race. You know, my mom was my mom, my dad was my dad. And um, I remember um, getting invited over to my cousin uh, Peggy's house. And my cousin Peggy, and my dad was the youngest boy, you know, and so he and Peggy were tight. And um, I remember um, there, you know, we had dinner, they were drinking and my, my cousin Peggy called my mom out and said, Oh, so you just a white girl, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, she was sharing with her, like, you know, your experience is not my experience. I'm a black woman. Right. This is 1968. She was just like, Oh, so you're a white girl. You know, you, you don't know nothing. My mom got pissed. You know, my mom was like screaming. She was yelling, I'm not white, you know, blah, blah, I'm not white, you know. She held up this pack of Kent cigarettes and she was like, you know, this is white, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just a person and you know, we're all the same. And, uh, and Peggy just said, well, damn, Sue, you know, you, you say you're not white, but your face is getting right, mighty red, right? And, you know, I remember uh, like, uh, you know, eventually, 
um, my, uh, you know, Peggy's mom is my first cousin. So somebody talked to Peggy and was like, you know, what, whatever's going on with Sue, you need to, you need to let that go. Right. And I'd go over to my, you know, family's house and, um, and it was like, you know, Bela, you know, come here and just the love and, um, given that my grandfather was a minister, we were taught that all things on this planet have value and, and, and that we, you know, we need to love one another. And then I moved to Oregon. And, um, you know, a good friend of mine, we were mixed, we used to hang out. I remember sleeping over at his house and waking up in the morning and there's a burning cross in the front yard uh, with a sign, you know, nigga love, get out, you know, get out of here, right? And, you know, I was 10 years old. And so that shit, right? You know, like you internalize that and, um, you know, I'm dealing with, with the grief and the loss of a parent. So like, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like we turn to drugs and alcohol to anesthetize that pain, you know? Um, and, and, and those addictions become real, right? It was real for me at one point. And, um, you know, at, at, at one point, you know, I got into my life where, like, I realized that, um, you know, I can make a difference. I believe I can make a difference. Now, whether I make a difference or not, remains to be seen. But I believe I can make a difference. And the reason I believe that is because I was told that by my aunt Zubi. Boy, you can open doors for somebody. You can make a difference, right? And so for me, um, that is the spiritual journey. Right. And I appreciate the judge talk about spirituality. I think you get to a certain point in your life where you start getting in touch with the inevitability. Right. And um, and so for me, I think that um, everything I do really is to, is to honor the love of my family in terms of in terms of the work that they gave me. We didn't have a whole lot of anything, you know, we were poor, but we had each other and we had, we had that love. Uh, and the place that where I felt accepted and I felt like I could just be me, who I was, not put on air, was, was, was in that family. So I just try to really just hold that to my heart. Um, I've been cleaning this over 38 years. You know, 38 years, man. 19 years old, you know, turned my life around. Um, you know, I got a call last week from, uh, I used to be, used to have this position down in Portland. You know, I was head of equity of this organization. I remember hiring this brother. Um, he had his PhD, and I think he was making like 30000 a year. Nobody would hire him. And I hired him into this position. I told him three years ago, I said, you know what, man? You're going to have my position one day. Brother called me up last week. Said they offered me the position, you know? Uh, 
a good friend of mine, Vicente Harrison. You know, I hired that brother eight years ago. Uh, he didn't know nothing about being no park ranger. He didn't know nothing about no environmentalism. He didn't know nothing about burden. You know, brother is an author. He's written two children's books, right, about environmentalism. You know, he's the head park ranger, you know, uh, in Portland Parks and Recreation. And he, you know, is becoming one of the leaders in his field. And it wasn't because of what I did, it's because that brother was talented. And so everything that he did, the Sente did, the only thing I did was just said, brother, I'm gonna give you, you know, I'm gonna give you an opportunity. I said the same thing when I said it. One day you will have this position. So, you know, for me, I take whatever self-hate, the antidote of hate is love. Always has been, always will be. Right? And not love of me, but love of another. Right? It's not love of self, it is love of others. That is the antidote to hate. So um, I appreciate y'all. Yes, sir. And yes, sir, your your presence in itself made a difference in that brother's life. Right. And that's where that interdependence and interconnection is so legitimate, right? How we gotta show up in one another's world. Brother Kev, what gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and be loved? And how will you overcome it? Uh, I think what's familiar, like I come, I, whatever I saw was the act of service as a, as a mode of showing love. And so anytime love is being addressed to you, you deflect it and you're like to the other and never you. Um, or even that's the point of like, or even sitting with it to like, is being loved something I'm worth it? Is it, yeah. Or even in the midst, because then I also come with priorities in my life, like in my, in my, in my family of origin, I see people who are really affluent, but also see people who are really struggling. And then in all this, is it really okay to kind of be loved? Well, there is a lot of issues and carrying the weight of the world. What gets in the way of my loving of other people? Sometimes wanting to do it right, perfection, and or even um, It's interesting what Ade said about, about the way the African people, the black people, we all we wanna do is just love. And right now, even I was just sitting with it and I was like, for so long, because my, my experience in the States are so being white, 
have been in this posture of trying to prove myself, to, to prove that I'm worthy, worthy of your time, worthy of the rich community, worthy of, or even just like, yeah, worthy of rich connection. And actually, not until I met you all, Ade, John, and Brent, and sitting in, in conversation, yeah, just, just conversation, just we share bread and we ate and we just went deep. And I was just like, ooh, ooh, that, that is right. That is possible because it's one of those you just like continued and you're just, okay, acceptance of this is the way it is. And the connection to other people, even finding people who can, uh, you can allow yourself to, to first of all, see that in them and then allow yourself to sit in it. Yeah. I think that's it for me for now. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. Whew. Brother Reggie, what gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and be loved? How will you overcome it? Man, oh man. Um, it's funny. Uh, <laughs> I was riding in the car one day with my brother, uh, my oldest brother, Jamal. He's a pastor in Skyway. And uh, I was like, man, everybody else in the church got a testimony. Why I ain't got one? <laughs> And as folks, you know, are on the phone talking about various addictions, I remember one day, um, and I, I've been dealing with a lot over the past 10 years, uh, and even though I'm young, people, oh, you young, whip a snap at you, ain't it's like, man, I, I hear you. Um, and, you know, I, I try to do a lot of reflection, a lot, try to do a lot of growth, and when I look over time, it's like, there's been a lot going on, and, and when I think about the term addiction, I feel like, you know, and, um, Kev kind of spoke to it that perfectionism it's like i'm either addicted to perfectionism or i'm addicted to hopelessness um and uh as just st Clair mentioned you know that feeling of being at yale like i purposely when i get into a new role oh where'd you go so i went to school on the east coast why don't you say that you went to brown university well because i don't want you to automatically think i'm potentially somebody and then only judge me based off of that. I'm gonna show you that I'm somebody and then later on you can figure it out. But then on the flip side, it's like, I also don't wanna tell you that I ran track because then you're gonna potentially think that's the only reason I got in, you know? And, you know, just consistently like this battle. And um, when I think about it, I, I, I kind of wrote it down as like the idea of dealing with the perfectionism because I'm black, but dealing with hopelessness because I'm me, right? So it's like, any times it comes up, you know, something's going well, it's like, I'm pushing, I'm pushing, you know, I'm this black man, I gotta prove myself, but when I'm failing, it's me. And it's just like, wait a minute, that don't make sense. But we don't typically take time, especially as black men, to stop and be able to reflect and think about these things. Um, and I remember one of my teammates was like, man, come on, man, you know, Nike, just do it. You know, it's just like, dog, I can't just do it no more. <laughs> like, and, and I think it was a struggle because I felt very broken. And I mean, I remember growing up and it's just like, we don't trust counselors. We don't trust this. We don't do that. We don't. And I was like, I got to figure something out. 
you know, so I, you know, finally I saw a counselor, finally started talking to some folks and I was like, okay, there's definitely some deeper things going on here. Um, so it's, it's still a process. I, I still am struggling right now with this idea of like, I have to get things just right. I think also like religion being a big part of things like, it's like, oh, I don't want to sin. I don't want to do the wrong thing. You know, and it's just like, let me be perfect also for that way. Um, so I think I'm finally getting to the point where I'm like, you know, kind of fighting against it. It's like, okay, I am a human being. I am worthy, period. I don't have to be perfect. And I, I don't have to come up with this other reasons as to what makes me worthy. So I think that's one, and I struggle with that one because I think, you know, there's that black piece and there's that piece of like, you know, you, you have to be good. You have to, you know, live a certain way as a Christian. So I think getting to the point where it's just like, no, you know, when I think about like social justice. It's like, oh, you know, where did I get this bend to do social justice work? You know, because I'm a believer of God and God being a, a just creator and a loving creator. And it's just like, you know, when people, uh, you know, argue about, you know, different things. It's like, you know, again, at the end of the day, however we got here, I hope that <laughs> the creator is just and loving, period. So when I think about trying to get, get to a place, I feel like it's really just a matter of practicing, reflecting and learning about love, right? And I have, and I also kind of remind myself, you know, on one hand, when I feel bad about like, oh, you know, did you get this because you're an athlete or yada, yada, yada. It's just like, those, that also gave me amazing skills. I trained and I practiced hours. You were in class and then kicking it and had a bunch of time to do homework. I was in class and in practice and had to do homework. You know, I learned to show up day in, day out, hours, three hours in the gym, eating a certain way, training myself. I learned camaraderie with my teammates. There were so many skills I learned through athletics. And it's like, a lot of times it's like, I'll forget about those things. So one of the things, one of the practices I've been working on, I mentioned earlier, you know, prayer, awareness, um, meeting myself where I'm at. I'm trying to take something I put so much of my time into since first grade doing sports is what does it look like to take love and treat it like a sport? Let me practice it. Let me learn it. Let me compete. And let me get ready for the championship. And I don't know what the championship looked like, but I definitely know that at the end of the day, I can be, I'm excellent on the court. I'm excellent on the track. I'm excellent as a brother. I'm excellent in so many ways. But at the end of the day, I'm excellent as a human. And what makes me human? What makes me human is that I'm a loving human being. I have other people to love. So let me learn how to put my mask on when I need to and consistently put masks on others, take care of others. and. Um, and it's a journey. I'm used to, <laughs> I'm used to having all the answers. I grew up not being a, 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 a know-it-all in terms of like prideful wise, but it's like, I was just always trying to like do the right thing. So I just always kind of, you know, I stayed ahead of the curve. And now I'm like, man, I'm so, I feel, now I am, I, I feel so behind the curve. And I'm finally starting to let that go. And I think the other piece is staying in these circles, you know, staying in circles with black men, staying in brothers with circles with community and, and, and my passion, you know, my work, staying in circles with the youth. Cause the youth, like 
I, I can spend day in day out with the youth and just supporting them and love with them because they they are always so authentic they're always so real and I think that's again what as people that allows us to be so loving is because like we show up we show up real so when we see other people that aren't real it's like hey be yourself <laughs> come around us you know we'll treat you and love you for who you are so again just you know really treating it like that sport getting into it getting nitty gritty with it and, and really diving head first into this idea of love and understanding, you know, who I am, where I come from, and what I'm all about. All I got is for you, brother. <laughs> all right, now. Brother Day. <laughs> what gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and be loved? How will you overcome it? Um... You know, I have to really rephrase the question because I feel like um, about two years ago or so is when I first started being able to receive love fully. And so there's a bit of it that is, is in my rearview mirror. And I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on that journey of how do I get to a place where I could fully um, give love and receive love. And, excuse me, I was thinking about, you know, some of the um, the, the work I had to do. You know, um, both my parents, is uh, my maternal and my paternal grandfathers, both left their families uh, when my parents were young, you know, two, three, four years old, left, started new families. Um one started a family like down the street kind of thing um and that my parents found each other and ended up getting married and and, and starting a family was uh is something um my dad my parents got a divorce when i was in elementary school pretty young uh, second third grade and um i think that um somehow that intergenerational sense of abandonment um, was one of the things that prevented me from from loving and receiving love. And I, I think, you know, love has um, many ways of showing up and receiving love can be shown up in many ways too. And for me, one of my big things was I would say no to to help. You know, and so, somebody giving you a helping hand is often a, a sign of love. And you know, I'd rather struggle and and fail and suffer than to to say yes to some help, feeling like that would make me less than, or I had something to prove. My ego getting in the way. Um, until I remember this this day. Uh, uh, it sounds really silly, and it, and it's not a big thing. And um, uh, I really appreciated pie. I like pie. And somebody asked me, did I want a piece of pie? And I said, no, just out of like habit. My habit was to say no. And uh, that night I remember thinking like, why did you do that? And I decided I was, I was going to start saying yes. When people would offer kind, would offer um, friendship or kindnesses, these small kindnesses to me that I would say yes to it. And, and not worry about being in debt to somebody else. Um, I didn't mind doing for others, but it was really hard for me to receive from others. And um, 
that was the turning point for me, just being able to say yes uh, to these kind gestures from other people. And continuing to, to grow, I had to really learn um, to listen to other people. Because people, when it comes to giving love, um, we really need to listen because people are telling us what it is that they need from us. And being able to listen and hear that and give, uh, if it's a match, at least, the love that a person wants uh, or the love that a person needs, the action that a person needs to feel love will come somewhat naturally to us. There's a fit that happens there. And so um, learning to listen, I think, was part of what I had to do uh, to be able to love and to to receive and to to give love, to feel love. Um, I think the other thing, too, was um, being able to acknowledge the harm that I've done, whether that be intentional or unintentional. You know, I I could be an asshole on purpose, but what I didn't realize is that I'm an asshole sometimes without knowing it. And so being able to apologize for those, being able to acknowledge uh, that I have caused harm, even though unintentionally, accepting responsibility for that and apologizing to that um, growing into that space i think helped put me in a in a in a better place to be able to love and receive love so um i think uh, the thing that still for me gets in the way is is um uh, being present and being in the moment not getting ahead of myself um and, and really um, just enjoying uh, the moment. Um, oh, you know, there was something else I wanted to make mention of too. I think oftentimes when we think of love, it's really easy to get to romantic love and even familial love. Um, and oftentimes within the black community, finding the brotherly love that, that we share, or the folks on this phone call that we share can be hard to get to. I think some of it's misogyny. I think some of it's homophobia. Um, and so understanding uh, myself and who I am and what I'm about um, and, 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 and um, grounding into that has allowed me to open up to, to my brothers in a way that has um, really nurtured um, loving relationships um, with my brothers, and so I think there's some there's some growth and some um, um I don't know just some fears and not worrying about the perceptions and you know um, my my parents were not people who said I love you a bunch. Their idea of love was you know providing for me um, discipline was a form of love keeping me safe was a way uh, of love, um, of them showing love. And so learning to even be able to tell, uh, particularly my male friends and even my non-romantic female women friends, um, that I love them, um, that took a lot for me to grow into that. 
um, in part because that wasn't the environment that I grew up in. So um, I think uh, reflection, I think is something that has helped me get to this place, um, getting over myself, um, um, not letting my ego get in the way or things that I had to do to be able to get to a place of being able to give and receive love. And um, sometimes now I think the thing that, that gets in my way now is just forgetting to practice. That's fair. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. Judge, what gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and, and how will you overcome it? Um, you know, it's, it, it's typically me that gets in the way. And, um, you know, of course, there, we, there are life experiences, I think, that we all have that become models. Um, but, but the thing that I think that has been most helpful is uh, to forgive myself. You know, because I, I, I've, I've, I've harmed people. Um, both in the course of the, the job I have, I've harmed people and, and, and then interpersonally. And, um, you know, just to, just to accept the fact that, um, um, and, and then actually I, I you know, I, I, uh, I was, um, had been married for uh, 38 years and got a divorce. And, um, you know, it was, um, in the course of that, my sense of self-hate was, had built, built up to this monumental height and intensity. And so, um, and of course, yeah, I, I came—not of course, but I, I came from a. Uh, my dad got uh, my fo my folks got divorced when I was around seven, eight, and so uh, single-family household. We're, you know, financially struggling, struggling for many, many years. And you know, part of me staying in that marriage as long as I did was because I didn't want to be like my daddy. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna abandon my kids, and I didn't. I mean, you know, they were 30, 35 years old when they when I left, and you know, they they still took it hard. Um, but an acknowledgement that uh, I I, I um, you know, part of it is forgive myself that I did the best that I could. And that uh, I, I probably wouldn't change anything uh, that I did. I, I mean, I, I, I probably, I, I know I have regrets. And gee, if I had a chance to do over, there's some things I would probably do over. But most of the things that I would, you know, that, you know the hardships that I've endured have been, uh, I've been actually thankful for them because they, uh, I learned from them. It made me stronger. Um, and so, but in the course of it, I always, I, I, you know, uh, I, I, there were harms that were done. And so that became um, 
burdensome for me to decide how to um, how to forgive myself because then with that I can now start that love myself process. So you know, part of that was the spiritual journey that I began with these these men that and and you know these men that I would say when I first met them I go somebody say hey brother what's up first thing I would do is check my wallet see if it's still in place. Now these are men that that we say to each other. I think pretty standardly, we love each other. We mean it. You know, it, it, it creates a camaraderie, a male bonding process that I've never had. And I would assert that most men don't have because we don't want to show weakness. We got this male, toxic male masculinity thing that we need to, you know, uh, uh, adhere to. Um, I don't need no counseling. I ain't crazy. And that's a cultural thing. Um, and then, you know, by the, with this group, I, I, I had a group of people that it, they said it was okay. You know, and kind of, kind of held me in this place, emotional and spiritual place that uh, I grew, you know, I, I kind of, uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, 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 Dr. Jones, you, you, I'm elderly. Don't, you don't, you don't want to be elder. <laughs> actually, actually, I don't want to be elderly, but I, I am elder and it's actually an okay place to be. Uh, and I'm thankful for it. And, and these men helped me to accept that role that I've always pushed away from because uh, I don't like being that that guy. I don't, you know, I I, I didn't fit the model as as I saw it to be. But these uh, uh, these group of men, uh, I can I really say to them, thank you, uh, and, and I love them. You know, we, we hug each other. Now, now we can't do any hugging because, you know, the COVID-19 stuff is all over the place. It doesn't mean I have, I've stopped that, having that emotional connection. And that, that really uh, cemented the, the part that said, I'm okay. I'm a good person. And there's... Um, and it's just, it's just not all in my head. You know, there's some other people who actually believe I'm that way. So it, it's, it, it's my community that gives me the ability to get over my uh, inability to embrace love in a healthy way. My community has been able to, to uh, support me. And, uh, you know, because it, it's hard to love somebody else if you don't love yourself. And it's real easy to hate everybody if you hate yourself. And so I went through this mode of, you know, undoing my self-hate and then realizing that I'm okay. And realizing that the, the, the and, and so for me, that's the model that has um, uh, really, um, you know, uh, uh, Maslow has this uh, hierarchy of needs, 
And by this process of uh, uh, reaching this camaraderie and uh, relationships, I, it, it pushed me beyond into almost a transcendental uh, phase of uh, uh, being in community and helping community to transform itself. And, and, and that, those relationships have been a, a true blessing for me. Thank you, John, and thank you, Ade. Thank you, Judge, appreciate you. Doc, what gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and be loved? How will you overcome it? Thank you. It's a, it's a complex question, uh, complex answer that I'm going to give. But I think the most simple and straightforward piece of, of it is vulnerability. My lack thereof uh, and my lack thereof in others. And I wear armor 24 hours a day. And it's armor protecting from the macroaggressions and the microaggressions. And so when you have armor on 24 hours a day, it's hard to give love, hard to receive love because there's this constant uh, thickness between you and someone else. Uh, and this armor is all over my body. It's not, it's not a place where I have an opening. And I've had to do that in order to survive. At least that's what I think. And is that false? Probably. But it's prevented me from being in more loving relationships. Also on my head, there's a helmet. And I can't take that helmet off. It's a, it's a chin strap on that helmet that is, is screwed on with some titanium screw or some vibranium or something like that that won't come off of my head so i can't think about love in a way that i let it penetrate my my thick my thick skull right and so part of that is this uh steady readiness for action and when you're always ready for action do you take time to be open to being in a space with others and receiving what they're offering, and can you offer that back to them? And the stress of what I uh, put upon myself and what I allow other, other stress to come to me manifest in fatigue and tiredness. And when you're tired and fatigued, it's hard to love. Definitely, definitely physically, but it's hard to love emotionally when you're, when you're tired because you're trying to gird yourself up you're trying to get your energy level back up so that you can be available and and that by definition almost is making yourself uh, not have time for love and love is an investment it's an investment of time it's an investment of, it's an investment of space you have to you have to go to the love and you have to uh be in places to receive love and so if, if you're tired and you don't have time for that part of that is taking on many roles. We have our daytime role of being the uh, whatever position we're being paid for, but then you're also 
uh, have the dual responsibility of being there for other people, representing black people, representing the black voice, representing the black male voice. And so you don't have time really to sit and ponder around how you're gonna engage in loving relationships. And so this readiness, always readiness for action, I think prevents us from being vulnerable to be in spaces with other people to, to be in love. And we, we actually, I think, I think this is part of this, again, this toxic masculinity where we can't turn it off because we think if, we're, if we lose or we get defeated, that are we, are we willing to accept that loss and see failure as a growing experience? But if we see, but we think the price is too high, I think that the price is too high to fail. And so I don't want that vulnerability. And so if I'm not gonna be vulnerable, it's, def it's definitely difficult for me to uh, create the climate and to create the conditions to be in a lo loving relationship. And so I think I have to think about where, where, where's the root cause of this? You know, the, the symptom is maybe I don't have as much love in my life as, I, I like, as I'd like, but I have a loving wife, I have a loving daughter, loving parents that are still around. Uh, but I think we could actually have even a stronger relationship if I was to avail myself more openly to more parties. And so I've been in a protection mode. And so I have a, a tight knit family, uh, but maybe that family hasn't been open to other people because again, there's that protection. And so I think uh, we, can, we can go all the way back to what's perceived to be uh, a real story. Maybe it's not a real story of back in slave time and it's represented by Willie Lynch and how we put generations against each other and we put genders against each other. Uh, and that probably has some, some merit to it. I don't know if the story is real or not, but I think we've had a manifestation and I'm part of it is where we have to uh, be suspicious in some regards of other people, uh, suspicious of other genders, suspicious of other males for sure, suspicious of other of, of people who are older and those who are younger, uh, that they don't have your best interest in mind. But uh, the only thing that is saving me from being able to have really great relationships is faith. And I know that uh, I'm not in control of what's going on. And, and God is love, and I, and I subscribe to that philosophy. And so if he is omnipotent and manifesting everything, then I should be in more love relationships, and that allows me to, to open up to those. But bringing it full circle, Again, I think it is, it's about uh, lack of attentiveness to being vulnerable. And I think that that's the preventive piece from being in uh, super healthy love relationships. I have a lot of love. I spread a lot of love, but I can have more if I would avail myself to it. So that's, that's what I think about. I, I got to figure out a way to take the armor off. Got to figure out a way to take the helmet off uh, so I can extend my gifts and the gifting of others to me and so we can build together.
So that's that's what I think about when we talk about love. Rich, rich, rich. Woo. Brothers, three words to describe what are you grateful to or for? Starting with Kev, Brother Kev, what are you grateful to for? Three, le- three words or less. For you all. Brother Day, what are you grateful to for? I am three three words. Um, fidelity, fatherhood, and faith. Thank you. Brother Art, what are you grateful to for? Love my ancestors. grateful to for grateful for uh learning i'm grateful for the love i receive the love i give and the love that exists and i'm grateful for the legacy that has built been built on my behalf and that I'll be building forward. That's legit. Judge, what are you grateful to for? <clears throat> I'm grateful for my ancestors whose shoulders I stand on. <clears throat> Curiosity. Uh, perpetual curiosity keeps me young. That's so real. Brother Reggie, what are you grateful to for? Um, so also grateful for love as i see synonymous i even said the word right synonymous <laughs> to god um grateful for my family and i and, and as others said you know for my ancestors um and that's another piece i really want to continue to work on is digging into that learning about that staying connected to that and then uh, working on being grateful for me
Brothers, I want to express deep gratitude to you for showing up as your authentic self, for sharing your voice with us and with others that will take the time to listen, to better understand our story. My heart, my soul, um, yeah, it's there, it's with you. So thank you. I'd also like to thank Indivisible and Stephen Cox for hosting this space. Chris Franco for connecting Stefan and I. And thank you listeners out there that take the time for this. Um, these brothers went to a real deep space and we're hoping that you cherish and connect with it in some form or fashion. I wanna thank my wife, Keisha, my children, my family, my friends, my community. Thank you, brothers. I appreciate you and I value you. Until the next time.